We've been looking uh, the last couple of weeks at the concluding verses of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Today we take up verses 18 and 19 of that passage. So let's stand as I read this morning that entire passage again, and then we'll go back and look at verses 18 and 19. You listen as I read God's word this morning. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Almighty, merciful God and Father, grant that all men everywhere may come to the knowledge of the truth, especially to this congregation here assembled in your name. Send forth now your Holy Spirit, the Master, the Teacher, and write your law upon our hearts. And I pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. In 1976, while I was still in the big green machine, the United States Army, I was assigned to Headquarters 7th Army in Heidelberg, Germany. And Carolee and I, we had our first experience in what was called stairwell living. Does anybody here know what I'm talking about when I say stairwell living? I see Amy raising her hand. Well, for the rest of you who may not know what stairwell living is, let me explain. We lived in this long building. It was, uh, I think it was, it was five stories high, had three entrances in the front, one on uh, each end of the front of the building, and there was an entrance right in the middle. And there were two apartments 
on each floor of the stairwell. And as the stairs went up five stories, that meant there were ten families living in each stairwell, which makes a total of 30 families living in each building. So you can imagine that at times living got a little close with all the kids and pets and toys and bicycles and cars and motorcycles parked outside, people coming and going at different times of the day and night. In fact, it was a zoo. (laughs) And the apartments were very small, they were cramped, the walls were paper thin, and you could literally hear everything going on around you. Some of the goings-on were actually quite interesting. I I won't uh, elaborate at this point. uh. But I remember distinctly the officer who lived above us. He typically worked quite late, and he would come in. He would get ready for bed, and he would take off one combat boot, and he would drop it on the floor with a thud. And I distinctly remember always waiting for the thud of that other combat boot hitting the ground or hitting the floor. Now, I'm not sure, but the expression, waiting for the other shoe to drop, may have originated from stairwell living in the United States Army in Heidelberg, Germany, or in some other place. Okay, Stu, that's an interesting story. But what does it have to do with Romans 5, verses 18 and 19? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> because with these verses, we come to what we've been waiting for since we started studying. Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, three weeks ago. You see, our, expect, our expectation, uh, expectation arose because Paul began this great section in verse 12 with a contrast. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But just when we were expecting the second half of that contrast, Paul broke off his thought, and it's indicated by that little dash at the end of verse 12. And everything that we've been studying since then has been a a digression, a parenthesis, an interlude of sorts. In fact, there there have been two major digressions, which it might be helpful for us to review before we go on this morning. First, Paul explained the sense in which all sinned. And he, he does this in verses 13 and 14. And we studied those verses two weeks ago. When he said all sinned, he didn't mean that all have become sinners and have therefore sinned, though I think we would naturally think this. But rather that each of us is declared a sinner because of Adam's original sin. Now, it's true, we also sin. We should be condemned for that if if there were nothing more to be said. But that's not Paul's meaning. He meant that all have been accounted sinners in Adam so that those who were going to be saved could be accounted righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said last week that that is a very, very important and great principle of imputation. And we can't miss it. We are condemned, not by our sinful nature, and not by the fact that we sin, as bad as those are. 
we are condemned by the fact that Adam disobeyed God and his sin was imputed to us. And God saves people by this same principle of imputation. Christ was obedient to God. And we can, through the channel of faith, be saved. Not by our own merit, but by having our sins imputed to Christ and having his righteousness imputed to us. Now, this explanation concludes at the end of verse 14. And again, we expect the other shoe to drop. But instead of completing the contrast, he started in verse 12. Paul again digresses in verses 15, 16, and 17 to show the differences between our union with Adam on the one hand and our union with Jesus Christ on the other. And we studied those differences last week. And hopefully we saw that they were much greater than the similarities between Adam and Christ. It's only when we get to verse 18 that the second shoe, or to use my very good illustration, the second combat boot is dropped. And we get the full impact of, the, of this contrast which Paul started way back in verse 12. Paul backs up a little. He restates in slightly different words what he said in verse 12. Then he finally completes the second part of the contrast. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's it. There it is. That is the contrast between Adam and Christ. Finally, the other shoe has been dropped. And then just in case we've fallen asleep and missed the second shoe dropping during this long interview or this long interlude, Paul drops it again in verse 19, adding, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You know, what a great list of contrast is implied here in these verses. Adam versus Christ. The one trespass of Adam versus the obedience of Christ. Death versus life. Condemnation versus justification. And I think all of them are sort of summarized or can be inferred in our text for today. But before we look at these two verses in detail... I'm obliged to, to first go on a little digression myself and remind us of what all of these compromises and contrasts teaches us about Adam and the events that surround him in Genesis. And the main point that I want you to see is that Adam was a real historical character, every bit as real as you and me. And the, uh, the fact that he actually lived is a crucial part of God's plan of redemption. Adam had to be a real person. So let's take a, a look at that. Some of you may know that there has been a tendency in recent times to dismiss Adam, as well as other parts of, the, of Genesis, simply as not real, as mythology. Many people today contend that the early chapters of Genesis are nothing more than a nice little story which tells a, a religious or spiritual truth, but they're not to be taken literally. 
You know, whenever I hear that judgment about Genesis or other parts of the Bible, two thoughts immediately come into my mind. First, I think of that wonderful little book by Francis Schaeffer titled Genesis in Space and Time, in which he, he makes a very strong case that the early chapters of Genesis contain real events which happened and real people who lived and died in space and time. You know, I encourage you to pick it up and read it. I think it's in the, in the church library here. And his argument has never been adequately answered by skeptics of a historical Genesis. Then secondly, I think of what the great English literary scholar and Christian apologist C.S. Lewis had to say about the truth of Scripture. You see, Lewis, who, who made his living and reputation writing myths like the Chronicles of Narnia, says that whenever someone says to him that the Bible is myth and not historical fact, he immediately asks that person how many myths he's read and studied to be able to, to make that judgment. You see, Lewis wants to know not how many times this person has read Genesis or the Gospels or the Bible. He wants to know how much this person knows about myths. Or as he puts it, how well this critic's palate is trained in detecting their flavor and their structure. Lewis says, I've been reading and writing poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know how they're put together. And I know that not a single one of them is like the Bible. So if the story of Adam is a myth, then according to Lewis, who's a, who I think a pretty reputable scholar, we're going to have to redefine the historical definition of the word myth. He concludes that the Bible is true, that there was a real Adam who existed in time and space. So that's one thing. But I think the real proof of the historicity of Adam is right here in this passage. It's the parallel that Paul draws here uh, in this passage we're studying between the person of Adam and the person of Christ. Now, Jesus Christ was a specific historical character. Almost every sane person agrees with that, even if many don't believe that he's the Son of God. You know, the Bible says that he came to earth at a specific time, in the days of Herod the king, when Caesar Augustus was the ruler of the Roman Empire. And Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And Christians believe that he accomplished a literal redemption for us by his death at the hands of one Pontius Pilate. Jesus came into our history to undo the effects of Adam's literal transgression. Therefore, Adam himself must have been a real person. And what he did must have been a real historical event. Dear ones, do you see what I'm saying here? You don't need a historical atonement to undo a mythological fall by a mythological person. All you need, need is another myth to do that. But if Christ needed to be real to save us, and he did need to be real, because you and I are real, a myth will not save us, then Adam had to be real too. 
So it's a real atom that all of us, it's in a real atom that all of us were condemned. And it's in a historical Christ that believers are justified. And this is what Paul summarizes for us here in these two verses we're looking at today, verses 18 and 19. And it's to them we now turn to explore this great contrast between justification and condemnation. You know, I titled this sermon Justification by Grace. But uh, after Cinda had printed it in the bulletin and it was too late to change it, uh, I looked at it, and I, I just wonder if that title sounds right to you. You know, I know for a fact that this church has spent a lot of time talking about the doctrine of justification by faith. You know, we've talked many times of this doctrine being the rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation. You know, Martin Luther said that it was the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. John Calvin said it was the hinge of Orthodox Christianity. And Paul himself, in his letter to the Galatians, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says so clearly that if anyone preaches or teaches any other gospel than this, let him be anathema to God. That word actually means let him be eternally condemned by God. Let him be damned to hell. So if justification by faith is so important and these giants of the faith say it is, why should we also speak of justification by grace? Well, my answer is that both statements are part of the same truth because our justification that is received by faith alone is also by grace alone. God's marvelous grace is the sole ground of all of our salvation. It stands behind faith. It actually produces the faith by which God saves us through Christ. In fact, justification by grace and justification by faith are both, I I think they're both shorthand statements. I think the full statement of the doctrine of justification is this. We are saved. We are justified by God's grace alone through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. We need to remember that. That needs to be burned into our souls. We are justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Well, let's make sure we understand what Paul means here when he uses this word justification. What is justification? Well, justification is a declaration It's an act of God's grace by which he declares sinners like us to be in a right standing before him so far as his justice is concerned. You see, we are not just in ourselves. So the only way by which we can be declared just and to be declared in a right standing before God is on the basis of the the death of Jesus Christ for our sins and by the application of of Christ's righteousness to us by God's grace. This grace is received through the channel of human faith, but it's nevertheless utterly of grace. It's apart from anything that we can earn or deserve. And our faith is itself a gift of God. You know, Paul makes this very point in his letter to the Christians at Ephesus. 
he tells them, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Dear ones, I never grow tired. I never grow tired of harping on this doctrine of justification. And you should never grow weary of hearing me do that. Because it's crucial that we understand it, particularly in this day in which it's being attacked by so many critics. You see, this is the way that God saves sinners. And to go wrong at this point, on this fundamental issue, not to understand and apply it, I think puts a person's salvation in question. So, justification is what this great passage of Romans is all about. And we need to fully appreciate the full force of what Paul says about it here. We are condemned in Adam and justified in Christ. This is what Paul says here in verse 18. Well, what happens when people are condemned? Now, does the act of condemnation make them lawbreakers? Does it make them sinners? Or does it simply mean that they're declared to be that? Well, I think the answer is obvious. It means that they're declared to be sinners. And it's the same idea with justification. The term, as I said, means to declare one to be in a right standing before God's law. Now, in a human court of law, this might be on the basis of somebody's own personal righteousness. A person can be acquitted. A person can be declared innocent because he is innocent. But that can never be the basis in God's perfect court because no one is innocent. We've all sinned in Adam. We're all guilty. If that's true, and it is, then how can God declare anybody to be righteous? It's only on the grounds of Jesus' own perfect righteousness imputed to us. Or to say it another way, we're justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Well, that brings us to another important idea, the obedience of Jesus. Paul highlights this in verse 19. What's the significance of Paul's use here of the phrase, phrase by the one man's obedience? You know, when Reformed theologians talk about Christ's obedience, they usually distinguish between his active obedience and his passive obedience. So let's just take a quick look at those. The active obedience of Jesus Christ refers to his active and perfect conformity to the law of Moses. You know, Paul in Galatians describes Christ as having been born under law to redeem those under law. What that means is that when Jesus became a man, he deliberately placed himself under the law of Moses so that when he went to the cross, to die for our sin, people would see that he had lived a sinless, perfect life. That he did so, as Peter says, as a lamb without blemish or defect. You know, I, I think also of what happened at his baptism. You remember when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized, John protested. He said, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And when John said that, what he meant was that Jesus was perfect that he didn't need to be baptized for any sin. Do you remember what Jesus said in response? 
Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus didn't come to John for a baptism of repentance like everybody else did. Instead, he came so as to be identified with us. He put himself in our position as our head, as our federal representative. Do you see what's happening here? See, the law is there. Demands to be kept. So Jesus kept it. He never failed to keep it. He rendered a perfect and active obedience to God's holy law. The passive obedience of Christ refers to his submission to the cross. You remember how he wrestled with this in the Garden of Gethsemane? When he said, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. See, here was Jesus face to face with this terrible decision of submitting to having all of our sins put upon him and bearing their awful punishment. And he asked, Father, is, is there another way? If not, then I'm going on. Well, he went on as a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't resist. He didn't object. Our sins were laid upon him, and he suffered in our place. See, this is Christ's passive obedience, and it's what Paul's referring to here when he spoke of one man's obedience by which the many will be made righteous. You see, Christ's active obedience to the law throughout his life, if I can use the term, qualified him for this role. But it was his one specific act of passive obedience, corresponding to Adam's one act of disobedience, that atoned for our sin and made it possible for the Father to credit to our account the righteousness of Christ. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Jesus alone. The most profound truth that we can ever grasp. Dear ones, all we are and have as believers comes out of the obedience of this second Adam. All the benefits of salvation come to us solely and entirely because of the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation is entirely of him and from him and in him. See, just as my being a sinner came entirely from Adam, all my righteousness comes entirely from the Lord Jesus there's no place for boasting here. There's no place for our, for our merit. There's no place for our works. We don't do anything in our justification. It's all of God. Not one iota comes from us. You know, John 6, 63 is a marvelous verse, which makes this point. It says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. You know, Martin Luther, who understood justification so well and who fought for it so long, he wrote in the margin of his Bible, right next to the phrase, the flesh counts for nothing, the comment, and that's not a little something. The flesh counts for nothing. It's not 99% grace and 1% flesh or merit. It's 100% grace. Dear ones, you and I, we don't have any startup capital available to cause God to save us. We are justified by his grace alone, period. End of story. Again, 
I want to make this personal. Do you understand and grasp and buy into this doctrine? You see, it's, it's vitally important that you do. Because there's a clear connection between understanding it and being truly saved. You know, I, I'm not saying, I would never say that everyone who is saved understands everything there is to know about justification. None of us do, except, except maybe Paul. But I do mean that if these truths seem impossible or even crazy to you, you know, if you say, how in the world could God possibly treat us as if we were in Adam and as if we were in Christ? How can he condemn us and save us because of something someone else has done? You see, if you say this, if this is what you think, if this is what you believe, then it's probably because you're not saved, that you're still in Adam. For those who aren't saved, this doctrine will always sound foolish. It will always sound naive. You know, it may even sound like an invitation to sin. And that's the objection Paul deals with next in chapter 6. It's, it's going to always be that way. For how can those who do not possess the Spirit of God understand spiritual matters? But to those who are saved, it's an entirely different matter. To those who are justified, who are in Christ, these truths are wonderful. You see, they're the very essence of life, which is what Paul speaks about here in verse 18, when he says that Christ's one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for those who believe. Dear ones, if you understand this, if this seems right to you, not pointless, incorrect, or irrational, or crazy, and if you believe it, you're one of those saved persons. If you understand and believe that you are utterly helpless, except for the grace of God to save you, from your prison of sin, then you stand justified before him and are indeed blessed beyond anything that you can ask or imagine. May God make it so in every heart this morning. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Soli Christa, Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory. Amen and amen.